0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And SolarRay, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring.
1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the Digital Renew Economy, and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how goes it in
2: isolation? Ah, uh, well, for me, it's not much changed, Giles. I trust all our listeners um, are, are, are managing okay, and what's a tough time in the economy?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, talking about the economy, um, our subject today is the hydrogen economy, which is something which has been talked about for many decades, David, but has never actually shown its face, but um, is now starting to peep from under the parapet or under the carpet or under something. Um, We hear a lot about hydrogen um, potential. We hear a lot about pilot projects here and there. We hear a lot about grand plans of gigawatt and multi-gigawatt scale projects in Western Australia and in Europe and elsewhere. So we thought that we would bring to invite to the podcast a person who's done a um, an excellent and very detailed review of the prospects of the hydrogen economy. And um, look, I think we'll just get straight into it and listen to it. It's Kobad Bavnagri from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He's a senior analyst. He used to be the head of analysis in Australia. He's now got a roaming global role. And his first major assignment has been looking at the potential of the hydrogen economy. And here he is joining us just recently. Kobad
2: Bhavnagri, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, Giles and David.
2: Uh, it's it's great, to, great to great to be chatting. Um, I, um, you, you've um, moved on through the um, uh, BNEF ranks to be head of industrial decarbonisation, global head, I think now. Is, is that correct?
3: Yes. I, mean, I, I don't know if I'd say I've moved on through the ranks, but we have been expanding and um, we have just started a, a global division that looks to examine how industry and uh, and buildings will decarbonize. So as the sort of decarbonisation challenge and what's looking within arms reach or, or, and definitely within what needs to occur is expanding from you know just from clean energy to of course transport is now well within reach and now uh, even industrial um, sectors are, are becoming somewhat within reach we're expanding our analysis to cover those those sectors that, as that, well
2: that's great because it's clearly um you know a lot of the pathway in electricity seems fairly clear now uh, there's still a lot of detail to be worked out at the system level but the, but the general path is clear and um i know that in australia we have these special challenges in that we're an energy intensive country like china i suppose and uh, you wonder about the future for energy-intensive industry um, and its electrification. And it seems to me that hydrogen suddenly is the great uh, hope of the um, of the industry, both domestically as a heat source as much as anything else, and also uh, um, ex- export-oriented. And you've d- seem to have released or BNF has released a very large report. Uh, looking at this in some detail, can you maybe just run us through quickly the conclusions?
3: Yes, that's that's what we've done. So over the last couple of years, we've been receiving a huge amount of uh, interest and questions, as, as probably everybody else in the energy sector has about hydrogen. You know, there's there's been this huge amount of momentum and I, I would say hype that has built up about um, about hydrogen and this this sort of uh, anticipation that it will be the next big thing in energy. Uh, so we we decided to open a special project to really um, delve into it in detail um, to understand what the economics of a hydrogen economy um, could, could be and would also need to be uh, in order for, for it to work. Uh, because one thing that sort of stands out about hydrogen is that there's not a lot of um, good independent analysis out there, which actually speaks to its economics. So, you know, there are there are a few good you know, and interesting studies that have been done by, you know, the Hydrogen Council, which is of course, you know, exists to promote the use of hydrogen and the IEA released some work last year that looked at, um, at the economics in some areas, but not in others. And also, you know, the IEA, um, being a, an, an agency of, of all its member governments, it can't really come out with a strong position. So, um, so you know, we turned our our, our focus to doing a, a completely independent analysis on the economics um, so we could, uh, you know, contribute our sort of fear and, and frank uh, um, analysis and advice about about it. So what did we find? Well, the, the sort of high level question of is hydrogen going to be the next big thing? Um, I think our, our our answer to that is um, it could be, but it's it's not going to be yet. Uh, and the reason is that the policy support that would be required for hydrogen to really scale up and um, you know become an investment opportunity and and start to reduce emissions, that that policy support that's required is not yet there. And although there is a little bit of movement and there's quite a lot of uh, publicity and excitement about you know all the pilot projects that uh, are, are slowly getting funded and proposed and targets that are being made, it's mainly in the category of um, very small stuff which is not enough to move the needle or stuff that's being well promoted but is not really that significant. Um, So so on the high level, we think that there is a lot of hype here which is not yet justified by the amount of momentum. Uh, But that said, the potential for hydrogen is huge because it can do something very significant. And that is act as a as a vector to decarbonize the hard to abate sectors of the economy. Um, the sectors where renewable electricity on its own uh, won't really be able to uh, to work and to reach. Um, so that's things like powering heavy trucks and, 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 and ships and um, and making things like chemicals or steel. These are the sorts of applications where hydrogen can offer and, and does offer a, a, a really scalable a, a zero emissions uh, alternative and option to be able to still do the things that we need to do in the economy.
2: So so I'll, I'll ask one more question and make a couple of simple statements and then I'll hand over to Giles. So I, I guess my question is around uh, cost and um process efficiency. So, and a couple of numbers for our listeners, for whom, like me, hydrogen is always a new topic. I think at the moment, it takes roughly 50 kilowatt hours. And I'm only talking about wind and solar uh, type type hydrogen. It takes roughly 50 kilowatt hours to make one kilogram of hydrogen. And I think one kilogram, it takes about six kilograms of hydrogen to make one gigajoule of Gas, natural gas equivalent. If you want to have some ideas about the numbers, so that I think it works out at the moment at current economics that hydrogen is somewhere in the uh, fifteen to twenty dollars Australian a gig um, a, a kilogram, which puts it somewhere up around a hundred dollars eighty nine. So I might have those five six dollars a kilogram, which gets you to something like about eighteen to twenty dollars uh, a gigajoule. So my my, I guess my my question is just around cost generally. COVID, if you wanted to uh, uh, talk a little bit about that and why uh, is it is it the case that cost can come down um, as much as the as it needs to? Yes,
3: yeah, so so I'd, I'd agree broadly with 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 those figures. The the cost of producing hydrogen today from you know, renewable electricity is is high. Um, you know, we put it at between 2.5 and 4.5 US dollars per kilogram. This is a global study, so everything we did was in US dollars. And uh, depending on when this goes to air, the Australian dollar may be uh, maybe a, a lot, lot lower. Um, but uh, you know that would put it at about uh, 19 to 33 US dollars per mmbtu, which is the the energy unit that most of the world uses for natural gas, at least. So. Um, uh, in kilogram terms, current price of producing renewable hydrogen at best is two point five dollars a kilogram. We think now there's good potential for that to fall, um, and there's two drivers of 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 the of that potential. Um, the first is that the the cost of the equipment that you need to make renewable hydrogen, which is called an electrolyzer, um, the cost of electrolyzers has good potential to fall and to fall quite quickly. so one of the things that we uncovered in our, in our work was that uh, electrolyzers um, that are made in the West so in North America and, and Europe mostly are really pretty expensive and those are the cost figures which almost every study on hydrogen in the world cites. you know the current sort of quoted prices that you know some of these Western companies will, would sell you an electrolyzer for. But what we found was that in China, uh, the cost of making electrolyzers is already eighty percent lower than in the West. We, we, you know, we were staggered by that eighty percent price difference. You know, you expect there to be something, uh, you know, something, you know, maybe even fifty um, percent, but eighty percent seemed just remarkable. And what we uncovered was that um, essentially the Chinese electrolyzer manufacturers are. Are producing electrolyzers at, at a price which is m- much more indicative of the fundamental cost of production. Um, the Western manufacturers have very high soft costs. They spend a lot on R and D. They spend a lot on marketing. They also, um, you know, have pretty uh, volatile orders of their electrolyzers. And so, you know, they have, um, from a cost perspective, pretty inefficient manufacturing. Um, and so, you know, they try and recover those costs in the units they sell, while the, the Chinese manufacturers um, are, are set up a bit differently and they, they sell electrolyzers to sort of existing industries which have been growing strongly and so they're able to achieve a better utilization rate at their factories and they also, they don't spend that much on R&D or marketing. So they, they just have costs which seem to be much more reflective of the cost, the fundamental cost of production. And so that you know that tells us that already, it's quite achievable to it to have a huge reduction in electrolyzer cost with, um, with a you know an increase in orders, and uh, and a bit of a um, you know improvement in the way these things are made. So we foreca- forecast all up that the cost of producing renewable hydrogen can fall from. US dollars a kilogram today to close to a dollar per kilogram by the year 2030, and um, and that it could go even even lower than that by the year 2050. We think about 75 cents in the best places um, US per kilogram by 2050. So that's you know quite a handsome fall, and that would put renewable hydrogen um, at about six US dollars an mm MMBTU, which is the price of natural gas in uh, in China in a lot of Europe and and in India, um, so it would make renewable hydrogen you know, on a production cost basis at least um, quite competitive for natural gas for many, many parts of the world.
2: And and uh, I know I said I'd hand over to Giles, but I think we, we have to cover, when you think about that, that um, in fact, uh, um, it's not just the cost of producing the hydrogen, but the cost of transporting it to... To other countries, uh, if you're Australia, is going to be very high because it's not a very dense product. So uh, maybe it's the case that hydrogen will be a locally produced uh, product as much as a transported product.
3: That's right. That that was one of the other um, findings that that we had, which was particularly relevant to to all the Aussies out there. Um, and you know, as you say, the the cost of transporting hydrogen is really high. Um, and it, it's really high because hydrogen is very light and uh, has very low density. Um, and it also has a very low boiling point, um, which means that you have to get it extremely cold in order to to make it liquid. Um, you have to get it down to minus 253 degrees Celsius, which is only 20 degrees above absolute zero. So a huge amount of energy is needed to you know, refrigerate the hydrogen to get it into a liquid form and put it on a ship. And then you have sort of other problems as well. You have more boil off um, along on the ship journey because it's so cold. Um, and so it's it's economics compared to say, you know, liquefied natural gas just don't look anywhere near as good. So um, to put numbers on that, you know, if, if you can produce hydrogen for 75 cents a uh, a, um, U.S. cents a kilogram in in say the north of Australia, um, which we think is you know possible by by 2050 or you know just when the industry is able to scale up to sort of big levels. Um, what what's the cost of the voyage from the north of Australia to Japan? Well, we sort of put that at about two dollars a kilogram. So you know it's it's almost three times as much as producing the hydrogen itself. And when you compare that to the cost that Japan, for instance, could produce renewable hydrogen on on their own shores using, of course, more expensive renewable power because the resource is not as good. Um, But even accounting for that, you know, we think that the Japanese could produce their own renewable hydrogen at $1.6 a kilogram compared to about $2.8 landed in a boat from Australia. So it's, you know, it's half the cost nearly to produce it onshore in Japan. So, um, you know, we actually think that, you know, those economics are, are pretty clear. They're hard to, hard to um, radically improve upon. And so this sort of idea, this concept that Australia is gonna be a big um, a hydrogen exporter of hydrogen, the raw commodity, you know, we think is a bit overdone. Um, will it be necessary in, you know, in the future when countries like Japan um, are hopefully heading towards a net zero target, and you know, can't can't physically generate enough power to to um, you know to to uh, to provide for their domestic economy. Um, you know, in those circumstances, yes, maybe they'll have no other option but to import expensive Australian hydrogen by boat. But it will be the last option, and it, and it should rationally be their last option. They should do it you know, everything they can to produce it on shore. Um, if they can't do that, to get it via a pipe. Pipe-based transport is quite cheap. Um, and uh, and if they can't do that, then get the products that you make hydrogen for from instead. And then if you can't do that as a very last option, um, you could get the hydrogen itself, but you'd be paying a lot. <laughs>
1: This is um, what we kind of refer to or what people are referring now to as sort of green metals or green steel. Is there much evidence of um, Australian manufacturers and iron ore developers or steel makers or, or whoever actually seizing on these opportunities? I mean, I've only really come across one with a really well-defined plan, and that's Element 25, which is more of a startup company. I mean, it's a 9 or miner. It's an explorer. It's got a very big resource. It's now looking to develop a manganese um, metals um, refinery in the Pilbara, it's looking to power that with at least fifty percent and possibly up to eighty percent renewables, and then competing and then exporting the the metal to China, where it's pretty confident it can beat that on costs. That sounds like a pretty exciting project. I guess that's what we would describe as green metals. Um, is there anything else that you can see in the horizon um, along those lines?
3: Um, yeah, so it's a, it it's a great question because what what the analysis and you know the um, those sort of facts on the difficulty of transporting hydrogen um, suggest is that Australia could still have a, a great competitive advantage at producing hydrogen onshore. We still would be at the bottom of the cost curve in terms of production costs. Um, you produce it here and then you use it here to value add and produce a low emissions product that you, you can then more easily put on a on a ship and, and sell overseas. Um, and, I, you know, I think you're right. There's not a lot of, um, of serious movement on that front by Australian industry. Um, you know, I think increasingly people are alive to the, to the hypothetical possibility. And, you know, you know eminent economists like uh, Ross Garner were talking about it as well. Uh, but people aren't really doing it yet. Or, or really even doing pilot projects. I mean, the the one that I would say that is of particular note would be Yara, who is you know, one of the world's leading fertilizer man- manufacturers, and they're they're doing a pilot to, um, you know, to to start making green ammonia using renewable hydrogen at an existing big uh, ammonia production facility they have in Western Australia. And ammonia is one of those green green goods that we could export from hydrogen as well as things like steel and maybe alumina um, and glass and, and others um, but so I mean why aren't people doing it it, it comes back to this the sort of opening point I made which is that the signals are not there there is not a market for green steel there's not companies willing to pay the premium that's required and there's no governments that are that are forcing their industries and their companies to do so so the so the economics and the conditions the realities that you need to sign off on a business plan are not there it's still a concept but it
1: it seems, to be, it seems to me, though, that um, and, and from your report, that um, there needs to be some urgency because you're saying that um, if Australia does not seize the opportunities in green hydrogen, then it actually has its metallurgical coal exports, for instance, which are far greater than, I think, thermal coal. I might be wrong about that. But um, you say that those exports, and they're worth tens of billions of dollars a year, could be at risk. And I'm just wondering if answering that question... Um, You mentioned at the start about the lack of sort of clear policy. Is Australia trying to be sort of um, um, trying to be too clever here? Because you've talked about renewable hydrogen, essentially electrolysers with wind and solar. But the Australian policy seems to be sort of hitting its bets and also developing possibly brown hydrogen or blue hydrogen, brown hydrogen coming from um, brown coal plants, um, mines in Victoria and uh, blue hydrogen from gas. Um, both of which are possibly questionable about whether they actually achieve the amount of abatement that uh, renewable hydrogen can. So, should we should Australia really just go all in one on renewables um, rather than trying to hang on to its um, fossil fuel industry?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there was kind of two two parts to that to that question, I guess. That you know, the first about the the speed of of, of Australia and you know how how quick do we need to move and how closely should we follow this? So. Um, you know, as I, as I said, the policy is not yet there to, to drive the transformation that is required for hydrogen to become a thing. It's not there to drive the policy, to, to drive the demand for the products that would be needed um, to pull through demand for hydrogen. Um, but the key thing that Australia needs to watch is, will that happen and, and when? Because... If and when it does, then Australia has a lot to lose because if, if the global steel sector starts to reorient towards green steel, uh, our demand for coking coal um, will have to decline. And uh, as you noted, it's, a, it's one of our most valuable exports. So we'd need to keep pace and make sure that we're, we're filling demand for that product. Um, uh, you know, in, in green steel, and luckily we're well positioned to be able to do that um, from the hydrogen angle, at least. Uh, and that, you know, that's true for a, for a bunch of other uh, industries as well, like uh, alumina, maybe cement, um, ammonia, and 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 other sort of derivative chemicals as well. Uh, so Australia definitely needs to be on the ball here. Uh, we need to be building experience. We need to be having the engineers who understand how to do this. The economists and the and the bankers and the financiers who are comfortable doing projects, um, we need to start small and and work our way up and keep pace. And and so far, actually, the you know the activities of the National Hydrogen Strategy um, do uh, you know are, are in line with that, They're aiming for Australia to keep pace. But what we're not really doing, where that strategy fell short, but frankly, where everybody else is falling short too, is Saying how do we actually get this thing to happen, which is, it needs a globally coordinated effort. Um, of
2: so, so, Cob- so, so, Cobad, I think that the way you express it in the report, and the way I've seen other reports express it, is in terms of a carbon price. Let's not beat about the bush. Has been the policy that you know runs across all industries and provides a metric uh, that you can focus on, as, as much as direct support for hydrogen. And I think you talk in the report of you know carbon prices in some of these industries of I don't know 50 dollars a, a, a ton as a kind of uh, sort of metric. I just wondered when did you actually rank the industries to see like which one would be the most effective? It does seem to me that like uh, electric arc steel, maybe you could put a steel works up in, up in the, um, up in the Pilbara you know with all the iron ore there and all the, all the all solar and wind and uh, but you know no one's going to do that just today, are they?
3: Yes, yeah. I, I mean, it's the same. It's the same point that somebody there needs to be a willing buyer for that product. If there was, then um, then Australia's well positioned. And and the the sectors which you know to me look the most promising um, for hydrogen are things like steel making. You know, we, we put that carbon price needed for um, you know to to incentivize green steel over over current you know polluting steel. Um, at about $85 a, a ton CO2 US in 2030, falling to about $50 a ton by, by 2050, um, you know, to make hydrogen from green steel, and, and that, you know, that's a pretty, a, you know, pretty low carbon price really for a sector uh, that, that is as hard to abate as steel. Uh, as steel is and has always been regarded. So, you know, there are some sectors which are better than others. I would say in general that the industrial sectors where um, you know, I, I is where hydrogen is looks really promising because it has quite a unique role to play. There's not there's not many other options to decarbonize steel making or get the emissions out of the heat component of cement making or for alumina refining or aluminium recycling. Um, you know, tra- there's a, been a lot of focus on transport, in particular cars, which is, you know, pretty misdirected actually, because it's clear battery electric vehicles are uh, a cheaper solution and, and probably a better sol- solution for you know most customers. But um, uh, but you know there is there is big potential in in the industrial sectors. Um, the the policies that are required look you know carbon prices is, is really important. Um, but it's not the only thing. And we sort of think about hydrogen. How, how do you scale up hydrogen? And kind of think this happens in three phases. The first phase is in the next 10 years from you know 2020 to 2030. And that's not really carbon prices. That's upfront subsidies to demonstration projects that are getting bigger and bigger. So it's kind of what we're doing already, which is, you know, little demonstration projects where government chips in, you know, maybe 50% of the cost and industry chip in the, the other part and everyone sort of learns from the experience, but they just need to get bigger and they need to be broader and in more sectors and in more geographies. And, and we put it that you'd need about $150 billion of, of subsidy over the next 10 years to, to scale up hydrogen to the point where you're getting it delivered to a large customer for two dollars a kilogram by the year 2030.
2: Now, 150 so one billion COVID dollars. A, what, 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 one COVID a year, sorry to interrupt but go on. Well
3: no, no, nowhere near the 100, 150 billion, I'm talking globally, right. So the context of that is you know we still, the, the world still spends over 300 billion a year subsidizing the consumption of fossil fuels you know, so it's 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 just and you know at, and 150 or more every year on on renewable subsidies. So, um, you know, we're talking 150 over 10 years. So actually, in terms of energy subsidies, it's not a lot. The problem is governments have not committed that yet, um, or the policies that will that will you know provide um, projects with an investment case. Um, so that's kind of what's needed in the next 10 years. But in the in the longer term, after that, to really get scale and to have hydrogen really reducing emissions, you need a lot more. Um, and then, then subsidies are not the way to do it. Then carbon prices are definitely needed. But you also need to have focused policy on on industry. You need to have policies that say that do that create demand, pull through demand for green steel, for green fertilizers. You need to have stringent emission standards on heavy trucks and on ships. Um, you need to have, um, you know, it, investment and um, and policies which, which make it clear that power is going to have to get to zero emissions, um, you know, by 2040, by 2050, so that um, people who are building gas gas peakers because they they're the only thing that can fill the gap um, for certain applications that th- those are hydrogen ready. Um, so that they can switch over when the economics work. You know, you, there's, there's a bunch of policies. We, we, we call them the seven signposts of scale-up um, that we say the investor should watch out for to, to determine whether a hydrogen economy will happen. And they're basically the seven key ingredients that we need for this to happen.
1: So just are we wasting our time then um, looking to supporting brown coal um, projects to sort of clarify that? Because if all the evidence seems to be, all, all the emphasis seems to be in renewable hydrogen.
3: Yeah, so we did have a good look at CCS, um, you know, for, on fossil fuels um, as well, and um, and what was sort of clear from from our numbers, which are consistent with the numbers of of, of others like the IEA, um, is that it's going to be a more expensive option than renewable hydrogen. Um,
1: it's probably cheaper now, but over the long term, it will be more expensive
3: it's cheaper today, but by 2030 it'll be, it'll be more expensive than renewables, we, we expect renewables to get, if the scale up happens, to get cheaper than 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 CCS hydrogen. Um, so from a cost perspective alone, you would say it's it's all going to be renewables. Hmm. The, but there's a but. A but. A big and the, the but is um, producing enough hydrogen in all the places that it's required to meet demand. So if hydrogen is to really happen, and if it's to play this role of decarbonizing the hard to abate sectors comprehensively, you are talking about millions and millions of tons of demand for hydrogen. Um, So we we put that number of demand at 696 million tons of hydrogen would be needed to meet 24% of final energy needs in a two-degree scenario, you know, in the year 2050, and um, those numbers may not may not mean much, but a quarter of world energy. So it's kind of doing what gas does today. Now, to generate all of that hydrogen from renewable sources, you would require 11 terawatts of renewable electricity generating capacity, uh, and that's that's an awful lot. And not every country can house that. Um, and so where it's going to be difficult to generate enough hydrogen domestically from renewables, you have to turn to some other options. As we mentioned, imports, if you, have, if you, if you can do it via pipe, probably a good option. Um, another option is fossil fuels with CCS. And the places where that probably will make the most sense are um, countries like China and Germany, which, Look, uh, the most likely to be to find it difficult to produce enough, and um, and also have you know these really low cost coal resources for Australia, it doesn't seem to make much sense because we've
2: and cobad and cobad yeah. can't we can't we just do the renewables via DC cables uh, as an alternative? I mean it's slightly more expensive than piping it, but it's way less expensive than um uh shipping it on the ocean with all the extra compression or putting it with ammonia so i don't see why we can't have say you know a, a massive uh solar industry in africa for instance uh supplying energy in this 2050 to to europe uh, via dc cables as silly as it sounds today
3: yes i mean and, and that's certainly an option in, in general actually it, it's better to, to pipe the hydrogen when you when you're moving large quantities of energy, it's a pipe is generally cheaper than, than an electron. Um, but the, the 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 complication there is is about energy security. Um, so, you know, if you're Germany or you know any Western Europe European country that may not be able to fulfil its its demand, um, you're probably already importing uh, electricity you know, clean electricity from North Africa for, for electricity itself. Um, do you also want to be importing your molecule fuel? Um, or would you prefer to have, you know, a degree of sort of energy diversification and the security that brings by, you know, d- by producing it on shore? You, you may well. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, th- these things will all come down to a whole myriad of factors, but, you know, we think that CCS may have a role to play um, in future for the for the countries which, you know, which could find it difficult to produce enough, which does not include Australia. Um, so the you know the idea that uh, Australia would produce uh, low cost hydrogen from brown coal in the Latrobe Valley and, and put it on a ship overseas, um, you know, I think is 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 a bit flawed. One because producing it from brown coal is more expensive than producing it from renewables. And and two, because putting it on a ship is also not a very good idea. Um, It's just really expensive as, as, as we went into before. Okay, but I'd just like to
1: um, ask one final question from my part at all. Um, you mentioned about transport, and you just sort of said it wouldn't make sense um, compared to battery vehicles, particularly for the smaller cars and uh, presumably some larger cars and maybe even some smaller trucks. Can you just briefly explain um, why that is, just for the benefit of our listeners?
3: Sure. So um, your listeners probably already know that battery electric vehicles are, um, are falling rapidly in cost. and um, and along with that, and part of that, is the fact that battery performance is constantly improving. So battery battery density is, is getting better, which means that um, the batteries are getting smaller, they, they weigh less, they take up less space, and they also cost less. Um, so the, the capabilities of battery electric vehicles are constantly expanding. Um, because, because the battery gets smaller and, and lighter, you can you can use it now for applications that you didn't think you could do five years ago. You know, all of a sudden now it makes sense to put it in a bus, or it makes sense to do it in a in a light truck. And um, batteries are almost always going to be a cheaper solution than hydrogen because um, batteries are more efficient. the uh, the round trip you know efficiency of a battery when you put an electron in and you get an electron out is you know over eighty percent for a hydrogen. System that round trip electric electrical efficiency is about thirty percent. You lose a lot in the conversion of electricity to hydrogen, and then again from the conversion from hydrogen back to electricity to power a motor. So you just you've, you've got these physics that that challenge you, and make it more expensive, and and that's that's true in general across the economy actually. Um, to in order to decarbonize, the cheapest thing to do is to use a clean electron. Now, a renewable electron um, hydrogen is for the applications where you can't and there are a whole bunch where you can't where you know using electricity is just really difficult um, so the the one application where transport of transport application that fits in that picture is heavy trucks now on the current pro- our projections for the density and performance and weight of batteries, it doesn't look likely that, um, or you know, or, or possible that a you know current sort of lithium-ion battery and improved lithium-ion battery chemis- chemistry can become dense enough that it can power a semi-trailer that's fully loaded. Um, it will it'll both take up too much space, it'll weigh too much, and it'll also won't be able to drive far enough for the for the requirements of those really heavy trucks um, compared to diesel but hydrogen can't um, so it, it looks like a, 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 you know a promising option for, for heavy duty trucks you know and that's trucks at mines and you know and, and, and all that sort of you know and construction equipment and that sort of thing. Um, but for for buses, for light duty commercial vehicles, definitely for cars, batteries are going to be cheaper um it's then just a question of uh you know how many or what percentage of the market of those lighter duty vehicles does a battery not work for for other reasons eg you don't have access to a charging point and so you just really want the convenience of being able to refuel at the pump and and then maybe a fuel cell vehicle you know will work for you but it'll be more it'll cost you more to run than a, than a battery electric vehicle will
2: and look, it's probably time to leave it. Of course, you've also got hydrogen refuelling stations and uh, infrastructure is not a, a non-trivial matter. Curve, it's been a fantastic conversation, as Charles and I expected it would be. Uh, I congratulate you on a great report, uh, which seems to be in line with my uh, far more less detailed thinking. And, and uh, I look forward to... Uh, reading the next report as well as this one whenever whenever you produce another one of these uh
3: i i hope that's not too soon this was a huge amount of work but i'm glad you enjoyed it and uh and thanks very much for having me
1: that was gobert bagnari from uh bloomberg new energy finance look uh, fascinating stuff david um are we gonna have to wait a
2: while longer for the hydrogen economy to emerge well, I, I think there was a story on, on the Renew Economy site today or somewhere that I saw maybe on LinkedIn that about several new projects uh, getting the go ahead in a minor way. But it does remind me of so many things in renewable energy where it's so much easier to talk about what is going to happen in a few years rather than what actually is happening and the actual uh, problems of making it work today. Absolutely, yes, and um, no, you're right, you did see that article on Renew Economy, it
1: was an announcement by Arena, uh, not a particularly new announcement actually, it's about the $70 million in funds for startup and pilot projects that have been allocated a while ago and I think they're just now open for business, So uh, seeking expressions of interest and then presumably will be allocated and one hopes allocated a lot quicker than some of the other things that have been um, hanging around Arena recently. Um, of which, um, their board has only been extended for another three months, which doesn't look very, very good for their long-term survival or plans or hopes that they might be refunded going into the new year. But I guess um, the other thing with the hydrogen projects, I mean, look, the main sticking point for Australia is really, as you pointed out and the uh, Cobad agreed, that it's the export costs which are going to sort of, you know, um, uh, scramble all this sort of traditional thinking about sort of, you know, packing up hydrogen and nice little molecules and putting them on a ship and exporting them to Northern Asia, we're going to have to think a lot smarter about this, and that really involves setting up a manufacturing industry, be it green steel or green something. Um, does Australia have the smarts to do that?
2: Well, I, I think it doesn't have the policy to do it at the moment, Giles. It's like so many other things. It's just uh, it's it, all a lot easier when the federal government wants to... Uh, wants to be on side and it, it just doesn't want to be on side with anything very much. I mean, this, we get back into this stupid policy wars that make life so difficult uh, for us. Uh, and in particular, it's but to be fair, it's not just Australia. It's globally that essentially if you want all these things to work, you, you, you really need a carbon price. Uh, that was the policy that Europe's got, uh, but it's not a policy that we have in Asia, and including Australia. And so as long as we don't have that, uh, I actually think hydrogen's going to struggle.
1: Yes, and one of the big debates at the moment will be as the Australian and other economies emerge from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, where does the money go to invest and encourage invest, new investment? And uh, sadly, all here we're talking about at the moment is more roads, transport, 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 more roads, more roads. So um, I think there is a big push to try and get the clean economy um, into that Thinking. Um, it's been given a bit of a shove in Europe, but I suspect that in the US, and I hope not in Australia, um, it may struggle to get front of mind. Look, David, there's some other things going on at the moment. Um, you're, 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 we've had a couple of articles in the last week from various um, energy analysts, rivals to your firm, I suspect, talking about their take on the fall in demand, the impact on electricity prices and what that might mean for the near and medium-term investment in large-scale renewable projects. I think the COVID-19 crisis and just the logistics of the whole thing is probably going to put off many projects um, that require lots of people gathering around in the same spot for a couple of months. But um, what's your take on the impact on electricity prices and demand and what all means?
2: Well, so demand is actually not down as much in Australia as in a lot of other countries, and as I've previously remarked, that's because Australia essentially has a large portion of its electricity consumption coming from energy intensive uh, manufacturing like aluminium smelting and uh, and and coal mining and the, uh, and the like, and that stuff's pretty much continued straight through. Uh, prices have certainly been very soft but this is a very seasonally weak time of year so actually total electricity consumption's down a couple of percent and if you look in Queensland it's for instance which is energy intense it's only down about one percent for the calendar year to date compared with the same time last year uh, and in fact it's ticked up recently to be closer to last year When we look at the prices, they're certainly very soft at the moment, but the futures prices took a bit of a jump this week, a small jump, which indicates that the market, I think, has got some more uh, confidence about the next couple of years um, beyond this year. Uh, At the same time, we're still looking at a situation where um, uh, there's plenty of new renewable supply to come on. And um, you know, there's still some major risk to consumption around aluminium. That'll be the uh, next uh, topic that comes up. What's going to happen to the Portland aluminium smelter? That's something we'll have to talk more about in the future. Um, uh, but uh, and of course, the coal and gas prices are, are very low at the moment, particularly the gas price. I mean, gas prices are back at the levels we we last saw before the LNG. Uh, export industry in Queensland started up. So if you could sign a contract right now to buy gas for, for gas fire generation, I know, I know this is a wind and solar place, but if you were just a buyer, uh, now would probably be the time to do it.
1: Well, exactly. I'm not really too sure whether you could actually, um, it, this sort of price would be any sort of encouragement to develop new fields that some are still planning on doing. I think Shell was talking about $10 billion over in the investments in the Seurat Basin. I mean, I guess they're thinking that the gas price is not going to stay this low for a heck of a lot of time but at these prices now I mean it just would be uneconomic wouldn't
2: it yeah yes i think so at the moment it's uh, totally uneconomic to do anything and the oil industry is, has has had seen major uh, cutbacks in capital expenditure and the oil price at around us dollars 20 depending on which uh, benchmark you use is completely unsustainable uh, for years, and I did put a, a, a note on the website about this, Giles, we, we've the US uh, shale gas industry has been kind of running on this um, chasing, uh, it's hard to describe, but chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow where they've just kept on going for production growth and never, ever worried about profitability or sustainable cash flows. And that's really coming to an end right now. Uh, in oil, in shale oil, I think, as well as in shale gas to some extent. And as that winds down, then we will see a recovery in um, um, uh, prices for oil and that will actually lead to a recovery in gas prices as well and we'll go back to something like where we were before but not as high. So just in terms of electricity prices, it's really demand in Australia is not that soft. That's That's the key point. Prices are soft at the moment at the generator level. Uh, but they're just showing incipient signs of recovery. But we're not that optimistic. I mean, here at IDK, uh, we, we've just published our new uh, price forecasts uh, and and we certainly revised them down uh, from where they were before because these lower coal and gas prices and because consumption's a bit on the so- uh, soft side and because we've still got a whole bunch of new supply coming online. Uh, these big wind projects, Murable and uh and um, 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 origins, for Stockyard Hill, and and some others still to come online in Victoria, and great, going to you know. And then, as I said, if the uh, Portland Aluminium Smelter was to close, and it will need a if it doesn't get a sm- a, another subsidy from the Victorian or federal government, it will close. Uh, then that's going to take uh, you know something like ten percent of Victoria more, thirteen percent of Victorian demand away, uh, mm. and all of a sudden we're going to see uh, your lawn and uh, um, uh, under pressure itself. Hmm. While we're
1: in the realm of forecasting, um, we wrote on Renew Economy uh, this week, the latest generation forecast from the Australian energy market operator specifically for South Australia. Now, South Australia is interesting because it's already at well over 50% wind and solar share, which is not quite the best in the world. Denmark probably beats it and Germany has been probably beating it or matching it um, for many months of this year so far. But the interesting thing about South Australia is that it is at the end of a long and skinny grid and it's only got one sort of what seems to be a loose connection to Victoria. Um, But anyway, the interesting thing about this was the AEMO forecast um, saying that by the end of this financial year, it'll be about 56, 57% wind and solar. And within four years, it could even be 87%. Now that's largely contingent on a couple of things. One is the um, attachment of Project Energy Connect, which is the new link to New South Wales landing at Wagga Wagga. And secondly, this scenario for 87% share of renewables is based around everyone getting reasonably serious about emissions reduction. But in their central and slow scenarios, not quite so much renewables, probably still over 60% and made then made up of a lot of imports from New South Wales. But either way, not a very good story for the gas generators in South Australia. They're going to go down to be no more than 15% come what may, should this um, new link to um, between South Australia and New South Wales go ahead.
2: Uh, yes, and I, I think uh, what we need to realise is that, that that's, that's generally right and it does assume that uh, um, Energy Connect go- goes ahead, which I've always assumed is the case, but you do hear people still questioning it and have to remember that nearly everyone's got a vested interest and there's lots of people who don't want it to go ahead because it might be bad for their business. Um, and it's also important to remember in this context that, let's, let's say uh, in Victoria, Portland did close, then that would lead, unless your lawn, for instance, uh, or one of the can find a new market, uh, then it, it, it will be under severe pressure. And so the most obvious thing for your lawn to do is to export more electricity up to New South Wales. Uh, and to do that, it needs more transmission. So I think that it's not just the renewables guys that will benefit from these new transmission links, it will benefit consumers. Uh, and it will also give everyone a chance for the market to be more efficient and the lowest cost generation uh, to keep finding a market for itself. But of course, to do that and to take benefit of such things, you've actually got to get your equipment to work. And um, what we've also
1: discovered over the last week or so is that one of the most groundbreaking solar plants in um, Queensland, I'm a bit sad to talk about this really, the Sun Metal Solar Farm near Townsville, and I thought that was a really interesting Uh, Project One because it was the first one of such scale in Australia to be built by a major energy consumer, the Zinc Refinery under the same name that operates near Townsville and Sun Metals are also uh, leading the push to have a change in the settlement periods from the 30 minute settlement which had been widely watered by the fossil fuel interest to a five minute settlement which could benefit battery and demand response but look it emerges that not only do they have this systems strength issue in North Queensland which has impacted that and a couple of other large-scale renewable projects they've also seen to have some technical problems unique to themselves performance issues they describe it as which has actually reduced their output by more than half now David, this is not the only one. I think we're going to write later on this week about the Bangala solar farm. Again, still performance issues down there. That's supposed to be Australia's biggest, but it's only operating at half capacity, despite being mechanically complete nearly two years ago now. There's some issues here with um, some, it seems to be in some of the quality of the work or the quality of equipment. I mean, some of the delays with solar farms and projects have been laid at the door of complex and changing connection requirements. And possibly even in the case of Western Victoria, some errors made by AEMO itself. But there seems to be a few mistakes happening on the development side as well.
2: Yeah, it's a very good article, Giles. I was uh, interested to read that. It does remind me that uh, success has many parents, but failure is a bit of an orphan. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I, I do think we'll learn more in time. It's always bad news travels slowly, and so it just gradually leaks out into the market. We'll find where the problem is. If I had to guess, I might be guessing around the inverter side of things, but I really haven't got a clue. I'm not an electrical engineer, uh, and I don't know where the problems are. It might be the markets. Maybe they've got terrible contracts and they're just finding all sorts of excuses not to produce. Who knows? I, I, I don't.
1: Well, their contracts are with themselves because they're supposed to be self-consuming the whole lot to keep, to help power the uh, refinery. So I suspect your first guess in, in inverters might be right, but um, we don't actually know. And one of the problems is that we don't actually get to find out because all of this is commercial in confidence and the market doesn't get to know, even though it would be an interesting thing for the market to know um, and possibly a benefit to the industry and good communication and transparency in any case. But look, there you go. I think we've had enough today, um, David. Um, very good effort in getting Cobad and um, getting him online. I thought that was a fantastic interview. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors as well, Solara Energy and Evergen. Thank you for your ongoing support. And um, thank you very much, David.
2: Giles, it's a pleasure to be here as always. Uh, it was a great interview. Uh, we're very lucky to the quality of the guests we get. We're very lucky with the sponsors we get. And we're very lucky to have some uh, an audience uh, uh, at this time, Giles. So uh, keep it up.
1: <laughs> All great things. And I'd also point to our podcast last week, uh, an interview with the WA Energy Minister, Bill Johnson. Um, that was a terrific one. And also to our Solar Insiders and the Driven podcast as well. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solarray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.